Hey guys, before we get into the episode, you all know I'm a huge fan of fashion and I have been ever since I was a little girl. And my first job, by the way, was actually at Macy's. And my love for fashion began when I started there because I worked in the fragrance department, but of course my eye was always on the clothes and the makeup and everything related to style. But here's the thing, my relationship with Macy's didn't end once my days of asking people walking by if they wanted a sample of the latest scents came to an end. Nearly 20 years later, I still find myself choosing Macy's time and time again for literally everything. It's become a really beautiful full circle moment that they've been such amazing supporters of our show for so long. And when it comes to shopping, they have everything you need, whether I need a last minute outfit or Kevin needs a last minute outfit for our friend's wedding. We always head to Macy's. They've got us covered. So if you're in need of some retail therapy, perhaps, or looking to spruce up your home or your lifestyle, check out Macy's friends. I've curated a list of some of my favorite items that have helped me upgrade so many parts of my life, really my fashion the most, but of course home and baby and so much more. So check the link in the description and happy shopping Hill Squad. Hey Hill Squad, I'm sure you heard the exciting Maria and Kevin baby news. I wanted to let you all know that they are on their way back home right now and we're planning on devoting Monday's entire chat show to share every detail possible with you all. Everything we don't know they're going to talk to us about. So again, that's Monday's chat show. Maria is talking all the baby info. So make sure you tune in and download that episode. We can't wait for you to listen. I'm on a journey to heal and get better in all areas of life. And I want to do it with you. Welcome to Heal Squad by Maria Menunos, where we improve and heal all parts of our lives. Most importantly, our health. Heal Squad by Maria Menunos, your life improvement series starts now. Hello, hello, friends. It's going to be a great day. And that's because we are about to know a whole lot more today than we did yesterday. And that is thanks to Dr. Gabor Mate. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited for you guys. This interview is incredible. He is a New York Times bestselling author. He wrote this book called The Myth of Normal. And it's pretty unbelievable. It's very thick, so I'm still getting through it. But Heal Squad, you are in for it today. We're going to get better together. I want to welcome any new listeners. Thanks for being with us. This is our goal every single day is to get better in all areas of life, especially our health. And I mean that in the most 360 of ways. Uh, our quote for today, trauma is not what happens to you. Trauma is what happens inside you as a result of what happens to you. And that is from our guest today, Dr. Gabor Mate. Another one, healing is not about staying away from something bad, but about living a life led by positive values and intention. Now, Heal Squad, sometimes we have one or two quotes. You know that by now. But I'm going to add like 50 more right now. No, not 50 more, but... Here's a few more from him that I just cannot start this show without. Much of what we call personality is not a fixed set of traits, only coping mechanisms as a person acquired in childhood. Much of what we call personality is not a fixed set of traits, only coping mechanisms a person acquired in childhood. Hello. Another one. Not why the addiction, but why the pain. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Trauma 
We just talked about that one. Pay attention to your insecurities. They are not there to taunt you, but to show you where you heal. Whoa. People need to have two needs, attachment and authenticity. When authenticity threatens attachment, attachment trumps authenticity. We're going to talk about authenticity and how vital that is to your health in a little bit. And then children don't get traumatized because they are hurt. They get traumatized because they're alone with the hurt. That was one I forgot to mention to him, but we did talk about children and trauma and why, um, you know, when they're not able to express themselves, how that affects you and suppresses things and you get taught to suppress things. We're going to talk all about that in this interview. Uh, Without further ado, let's get to it with Dr. Gabor Mate. Gabor, we've looked forward to this for a while. I have to be honest, this is a thick book to get through, but I'm still getting my way through and uh, I'm finding so many connections, I think, Mm -hmm. Uh, so many things that I have felt and believed myself. And this is why the show exists, because I believe that we have to um, kind of be a little bit more in charge of our healing as well. But you expanded so much further from the individual to yeah. the collective. And I really found that fascinating to really think about um, looking at health as a whole And that the alarms, you know, as there's a rise in, let's say, mental illness or a rise in diabetes in a certain area, um, to look at where we're going rather than the individual. So you look at it as a collective so you can heal the the bigger issue at hand. The collective and also the uh, interpersonal, you know. Yeah, so it's a false idea that we're individuals separate from others. And that our physiology and our psychology is purely um, a separate uh, dynamic. So from the very beginning, from conception onwards, our development is affected by our environment. And that includes the emotional environment. So already in uterus, the emotional states of the mothers are affecting the physiological brain development of the child. And those effects can be seen even decades later. And... That happens right from, and then right from birth, how we get born, the the nature of the birth process itself. And then, of course, the early childhood, all these affect the emotional states of the child. And what we know, this is pure science, unfortunately, disregarded by my profession, the medical profession, is that the mind is inseparable from the body. So our emotional states have a huge impact on our physiology. So illness, whether of mental illness, sort or the physical illness, is not simply an individual uh, manifestation, but it actually reflects our lifelong relationships with others in our lives. And so the people that develop autoimmune disease or depression or ADHD or malignancy, um, these reflect emotional and interpersonal and social factors um, not simply separate biological events. Yeah, I think I, I noticed that with my mom when uh, she was diagnosed with glioblastoma. Okay. I went on a uh, mission to help her beat the odds. And the first things, aside from, you know, the immediate, you have to have surgery and you have to do chemo and radiation, all of that. 
for me, the immediate was let's get to the emotional. Mm. You know, I know that she had gone through a lot of things in her life and there was a lot of pain that was just, you know, in there percolating and, you know, that generation and being an immigrant, they don't, you know, seek help. They just kind of bury it, but then it, it manifests into something. And so, but it was interesting even going through her healings, how much I learned about myself, Mm. you know, her first baby was, um, strangled by umbilical cord on delivery day on Christmas day. So when she got pregnant with me soon after the anxiety and the terror she had until she saw me come out alive, I definitely have carried Without knowing it, I that's where I think I inherited anxiety from. Uh, well, let, let me take a stab at kind of intuiting your mother's personality. Uh, I could be wrong, but I certainly noticed in family practice and in palliative care and in a lot of the research literature as well that people that develop Malignancy, it's not accidental. You know, in other words, it reflects something of their lives. So your mother, I would have guessed, would have been somebody traumatized in childhood. And then probably one of these people that repressed her emotions much of her life, especially her healthy anger. She probably looked after the she probably looked after the emotional needs of others more than of herself. Mm-hmm. And and uh, she probably absorbed a lot of the stresses in her marriage with your dad, I would guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, these are the people that develop illness, whether it's mm-hmm. autoimmune disease or malignancy. And there's a reason, for example, why 80 or 80% of people with autoimmune disease are women. Because mm-hmm. in this culture, women are trained to, they're even rewarded or, or admired for having those characteristics of taking on everybody else's stuff. Yeah, suck it up. Suck it up, yeah. And, but the other part of it is, there's actually a fellow I interviewed for my book, The Myth of Normal. Um, The the guy I interviewed, he had a brain tumor, and he wrote a book called Blessed with a Brain Tumor. Yeah, I read that. I don't recommend that to anybody, but what he was saying, and a lot of people with illness have said to me that, the illness woke them up to how they were not connected to themselves and, and, and they learned so much about themselves. So again, it's not a form of learning I would recommend to anybody or wish upon anybody, but illness does teach us a lot about ourselves if we see the connections. Yeah. Well, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor soon after my mom and said the same thing. I'm like, this is a gift. It's changing my life. And I've been on this path for the last six years, really focusing on trying to heal the childhood traumas and trying to heal from, you know, everything in general. Uh, But it is a lot. And, um, you know, you talk about health and illness are an expression of a life lived. Mm -hmm. And I sit here and it's, it's interesting. I've just been having these conversations with my husband this week. There's been so much that I know I've gone through in my life that, you know, from the outside, it could look amazing, but my dad was a severe type one diabetic, Mm. almost died constantly of low blood sugars. My mom and I had to be in tune Mm. energetically to know when he was not in our presence, if he was okay, and then race to him and find him um, if he wasn't. And how old were you then, if I may ask? Oh, from child. 
Okay, so in other words, you were given the task of looking after your parent. Oh, yeah, I've been. So you became the parent. I've been the parent for years. I always said yeah, I couldn't yeah. have kids because I've been yeah. I've had my own kids yeah. and my parents. Yeah. So what does that do to your capacity then to be aware and to um, highlight your own needs as a child? You know, it means you have to suppress them, I would I would guess, mm-hmm. you know, which then shows up later on in your life. When you get Hashimoto's, when you get, uh, I mean, I've piled up the autoimmune conditions. I've had the brain tumor. There's all kinds of things that I'm dealing with and and trying to heal from. But when I read that line, that health and illness are an expression of entire life lived, this is what my husband and I talk about all the time. Mm -hmm. Then it was, so that was childhood. I also had a very violent brother that I had to evade. And Mm -hmm. then on top of that, I enter. Hollywood and the entertainment world and the toxicity and the cruelness slapped me in the face at every turn. And then till it was like, I got the brain tumor. I called it my get out of jail free card. I was like, I'm out. This is, this is crazy. Well, prior to writing to the myth of normal, I wrote a book called when the body says no. And and it basically says that when people are learn not to say no in childhood, they have to suppress their, no, the body will say it in the form of illness, you know. And if I may say, um, I would guess that for beautiful women like yourself, women are considered beautiful, it's even harder because people are not looking at you as a person. Hmm. They're looking at the outside, you know, and, 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 and what you feel and what you actually experience internally just is not important what is important is the image that we present you know Mm -hmm. i mean i had my own version of that uh not in the sense of mm, physical attractiveness but but from the point of view of being seen for what i could give the world not for who i was and not not for my own needs not for my own authentic being but what could i know so i became a workaholic doctor you know, which which um, you get admired and you get well paid and you get respected and but you're ignoring your own needs. Mm-hmm. And and this ignoring of our own needs is endemic in this culture. And so some of the most successful people are so miserable because while they, their success is external, their internal essential self is disregarded until some crisis comes up like an illness or a divorce or you know some life challenge and then you have to start asking whose life am i leading anyway and what's this all about i'm sure you understand what i'm talking about a hundred percent i think you know when you start getting those rewards it's filling something also that is is probably you know um missing or or feels just so good because I became a workaholic too. When I was in the hospital after brain surgery, I looked at my husband, I go, I don't need this like other people need this. Hmm. And I've been chasing people as my pace car that really need this. And I followed the wrong people. I am not connected to myself and who I really am. And I also think that I thought who I really was wasn't enough 
because who I was, was somebody that just wanted to sit with my friend by the pool and have a nice day or go get an ice cream or I didn't need all of that big stuff. And in fact, Mm. people are still shocked when they're like, I didn't care about going to the Oscars. I didn't care about going to Mm. any of these things. The Super Bowls were fun because I love my football team, but, (laughs) but none of it, it's not like I ever looked forward to it. To me, it was more of a chore. I was much happier at home. I'm a homebody. I understand Mm. that now. And, um, but I think finding that authenticity inside of yourself is something you talk about in the book as being so important. You say, I think it's authenticity and connection, right? Is what we really need. Well, so children are born with with certain needs. These are, these needs are not arbitrary and they're not cultural. They are part of what evolution has bestowed to us. Every, Every creature is born with certain needs that the environment needs to provide so that the creature, whether it's a plant or an animal or a human, can thrive according to its best potential. The human children are born with a need for a strong attachment relationships where they're held and seen and, and where they're secure. It's unconditional. They need that. That's, that's just an essential need of a human child. Attachment. In that inside that attachment relationship, attachment just means being close to somebody so that you're taken care of. Inside that attachment relationship, they need to be able to rest. And rest means they don't have to work to make the relationship work. Now, you had to work. And I had to work as a kid to make a relationship with our parents work, mm-hmm. which is not the job of a child. Number three, we have to be able to experience all our emotions all of our emotions, because we're, nature has given us a whole range of emotions that are wired into our brain. That includes grief and pain and anger and joy and curiosity and lust and playfulness, um, sadness, fear. And the child ought to be able to experience all of those emotions and have those emotions accepted by the parents. Now, that's being authentic is to be able to know what you feel and to be able to act on it. Now, what happens, however, if the parenting environment can't accept certain ch- feelings on the part of the child? What if the parents have listened to one of these stupid parenting experts that told them that an angry child should be punished? Well, the child is in a position of, if I'm authentic, if I feel what I feel, I won't be accepted and I'll lose my attachment relationship. So then what we all do, when we get the message that who we are is not acceptable for our parents, what we all do is inevitably suppress who we are. So we lose our authenticity. We lose our connection to ourselves. And then as adults, then we have to figure out, you know, and this is the journey that sounds like you've been on, is who am I really? And, and, And we're having to undertake that challenge of finding ourselves because in childhood we lost ourselves because that was the price we had to pay to be accepted by our families and this culture and ideally as adults we learn how to be connected and ourselves and authentic at the same time but it's not always easy because the world demands that we don't be ourselves but that's the the bigger problem right and you talk about this is it's it's society it's it's the way the environment is set up where you do have you know the myth of normal the myth of these parenting experts that tell you how it's supposed to be but yeah. also 
you know, nobody has the patience or the time to deal with an angry kid or, uh, or anything that's not normal. Like everybody's supposed to just be happy all the time. And that's just not real. And I remember reading something about if a, if a child feels um, something and you, um, and you dismiss it, then they don't feel safe. And yeah. that's when it starts to kind of pile on. Well, again, the, the child has an essential need to be able to experience all their emotions. Now, that doesn't mean they have the right to behave any way they want to behave. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the right to experience the emotion. And as soon as the child gets the message that uh, good little kids don't get angry, that's not the message the child receives. The message the child receives is that angry little kids don't get loved. Mm-hmm. And then we suppress our healthy anger. And anger, by the way, there's such a thing as healthy anger. Nature gives it to us for a reason. All animals have anger for a good reason, to protect their boundaries. <laughs> and as soon as we get the message that that's not acceptable, then we suppress ourselves. And given the mind-body unity, like here's the deal. This is the big secret that scientifically is not even controversial, but the average physician never hears it in medical school, which is astonishing. The mind and body are not separable. So the hormonal apparatus, the you mentioned Hashimoto's, which is a thyroid disease, the hormonal organs, uh, the hormonal apparatus, the immune system, the nervous system, and the emotional system are not separate. It's all one. They're not even connected, because even to say that they're connected is to imply that separate entities are connected. They're one. So our immune system, so so anger, let's look at healthy anger. Healthy anger simply says, you're in my space, get out. Don't do that to me. Don't invade my space physically or emotionally. That's what healthy anger is. You see it in the natural world all the time. It's a boundary defense. But we don't learn to have boundaries. I'm just learning that at 44 (laughs) in therapy. (laughs) The boundary defense. Now, what is the immune system? It's a boundary defense. It lets in what's healthy and nurturing, vitamins and nutrients and healthy bacteria. And it keeps out toxins and unhealthy bacteria, so on. The immune system and emotional system have the same job. And there are no one system. So when something happens emotionally, it also affects the immune system. So when people suppress their emotions, they're also messing with their immune system. And that's why people develop autoimmune disease or um, other problems. Not blaming anybody for this because nobody does deliberately or consciously. This is what happens in childhood when we're able to suppress ourselves. And so, like like I said about your mom, once I know that she has a certain medical conditions, I can Peter will tell you their personalities. Yeah. And, and and again, it's not their fault. It's how they were conditioned in childhood. So, when you say you have to learn your boundaries, let me let me ask you a question. I mean, this is so obvious. You think as a one day old baby, you didn't know your boundaries? Do you think what? As a one day old baby, did you think you you don't you think you didn't know your boundaries? <laughs> of course not. Yes, you did. I did? Yeah, somebody tried to feed you something you didn't want, you'd go, 
Um, good know? point. Yeah, you're right, actually. Well, of you course know? you're right. <laughs> and, and then a one and a half year old kid is what are they saying all the time? What's the, the big truth. word? They say no. Mm-hmm. They know how to say no. It's the first word they say, which is a boundary defense. No. So it's in our nature to have boundaries. Every animal has them. And something happens, so we have to suppress it. And so that's why in midlife or later on, then we have to find out or figure out our boundaries in theory, in therapy, because we had to suppress them in childhood. How do you know, though, how to let that that anger out healthily? Because, you know, I know that in December I was really hurt by somebody in my life. And I've been meditating this last year and really trying to, you know, um, focus on my healing and all that. And I've been in such a good place. Right. Mm -hmm. So this person hurts me so badly, completely shocks me out of nowhere, breaks my heart. And my first reaction was shock. And then I said, well, this is their loss because I know what kind of friend I am. I know what kind of person I am. It's their loss. It didn't mean it didn't hurt me and it didn't keep coming in my thoughts, but I, I released. And then soon after was like, okay, forgive that person. I know they're not healthy mentally and that this is probably just them taking it out on me. So now maybe I'm rationalizing. I don't know. And I know that a lot of people are probably going through things like this. I'm going to explain it in these details, but, and then maybe I suppressed it maybe. Um, but but I also thought that the Zen thing to do is not to think about it and or try not to think about it. What is the way to handle something like that? Are you supposed to yell and scream and and fight or are you just supposed to, you know, I don't know. Well, so first of all, I don't know that I agree with you about the Zen thing, you know, because the Buddha, when you when you look at the Buddha's teachings, he didn't say don't be angry. He said, when you're angry, be aware of it. So he said that, he was talking to his monks, the bhikkhus, the monks, he says, or the bikinis, the, uh, the, the, you know, the female monks. And he'd say, when the bhikkhu is angry, he says, there's anger in me. When the, when the monk experiences joy, he says, there's joy in me. So he never said suppress anger. So first of all, is awareness. Now, much of the expressions of anger, they don't come with awareness. They're automatic. They're reactions. It's like you put, like, you know, I used to be a rageaholic. Really, I did. You know, and that hurt my kids. And and um, I, I don't mean I physically hurt them, but they witnessed my rages, you know. And it wasn't, that wasn't healthy anger. That was me being triggered somehow. And then the anger just bursts out of me like out of a volcano. But if, I, if, but if I'm aware that there's anger in me, then if somebody does something that's hurtful, I can say, this makes me angry, I will not put up with it. That's all. You know, it's, so it's no big display, it doesn't have to be dramatic. You know, it's just appropriate to the situation. But it's, no, you will not do that to me. You will not speak to me that way, whatever it is. So healthy anger is very simple, and it's in the moment. And once it's over, it's over. Like if I intrude on your space somehow, and you say, no, you will not do that. And once I've backed off, 
you don't have to keep being angry with me. Mm-hmm. Just draw, you know, you may not want to see me again, or you may choose to see me again. That's totally up to you. But the anger doesn't have to keep percolating inside you. That's the difference between healthy and unhealthy anger. Is that healthy anger is a boundary defense in the moment when it's expressed, done its job, it's over. Is that clear? Yeah, it okay. is. No, I said that emotionally. Emotionally, I would say that. I said it to my husband. I was like, "No, this was really wrong, and I'm I'm not letting this person talk to me like that. I'm not saying anything to them because that is my answer. My silence is my answer at this point." Fair enough. But, but but I know it's it's really hard to know how to properly express it. But I think that really helps. It's at least acknowledging it and. Um, and kind of setting that boundary, maybe out loud. Um, you said something interesting. So, so do you think, and I mean, this is what I feel, um, the anger is what manifests, the repressed anger is what manifests illness? Oh, yeah. There's lots of studies on <clears throat> that people who repress anger are more likely to get autoimmune disease, like I said. Like, <clears throat> what happens to anger that you repress? Does it ev- does it evaporate into the atmosphere? Hmm. It doesn't. It turns against you in a number of ways. That the anger that you don't, the healthy anger that a child can't express, turns into self-loathing. It turns against the self. Another thing that happens to healthy anger, which is if it's not expressed, we push it down. What's another word for pushing something down? Depressing it. What do you think? Ooh. What do you think depressed? What do you think depression is all about? It's all about the pushing down of healthy anger and emotions. Why does the child do that? Because it wasn't acceptable for them to experience their emotions. So to be acceptable to the environment, they pushed on their feelings. They depressed their feelings. Then they diagnosed twenty years later with depression. Or also, if you're pushing it down, to me, you're pushing it down into your gut. Exactly. That's what that felt like to me, just, you know, intuitively, just now you're pushing it into your gut and then that's where all kind of disease starts. Well, actually, if, if you look at um, <clears throat> conditions of the gut, like um, irritable bowel syndrome that a lot of women get, there's a significant percentage of women with IBS, for example, who were sexually abused as children, mm. but they had to repress their emotions and literally they pushed it into their guts and... Um, inflammatory conditions of the guts like colitis and Crohn's disease again it's characterized characteristically happens to people who suppress their emotions which also means that if they learn to experience their emotions and to express them in a healthy way their diseases can lighten up quite a bit and I've seen that over and over and over again Mm -hmm. so When you're on the go 24-7 like me, guys, finding ways to make life easier is so important for my health and sanity. (laughs) And that's exactly what my friends at Macy's do for me. From working there as a teenager to now going to them for so many of my daily essentials, it's been my go-to for so many years. And having everything in one place is such a time saver for me. With being a first-time mom, for a while now, as you know, I've had plenty of those and being able to rely on them for all the things has been amazing. Plus having everything in one place has made being a new mom just a little bit easier for me. So I know we're all focusing on our families, our health, hopefully our jobs and everything in between, but 
It's time to make your life a little easier. And to help you out, I've curated all of my essentials from Macy's for you and the whole fam. All the details are in the show notes below, or you can just click the link in the description to get your hands on them too. I have some new picks on there. This little bomber jacket, this little black dress. You're gonna love it. All right, friends, let's talk about something we all do. Snack. Trust me, I've definitely overindulged in the past, but as you know, I am focused on my health these days. And I think I found the healthier snack that you don't have to lose out on the flavor. And it's definitely become my go-to. It first came into the house because of Kevin. He was obsessed with wonderful pistachios. And then I got addicted. And now it's in my travel bag. I don't leave home without it. It's in our glove compartments because they don't melt. Right now, my favorite flavor is the sweet chili flavor. It feels like some of the naughtier kind of snacks I used to use where I used to lick my fingers after. Now I lick them and I feel safer. Um, Plus, Wonderful Pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts. Each one ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. That's crazy, guys. So if you're looking for the perfect snack, trust me and head over to www.wonderfulpistachios.com to snag a bag of Wonderful Pistachios. You're going to love them. I remember my mom always struggling with her hair. It's frizzy Maria, my mom would say in her Greek accent. Tiejis, what do you have? I tried so hard to find her products. I wish I could share these products I'm using now with her because I know she would be so happy to finally have good hair days. I've always believed that hair is a woman's best accessory. And with Way's new anti-frizz cream, you can ensure that your hair always looks its best without the frizz stealing the spotlight. It's a lightweight cream that not only provides immediate frizz control, but also helps prevent heat damage. And get this, it lasts up to 72 hours. That's three whole days of frizz-free, gorgeous hair. Way seriously has some of my favorite products for taming the frizz. Pro tip, one of my biggest discoveries is using the Way hair oil on the ends of my hair before I dry it. Let me tell you, it's a game changer. Once it's dry, my hair looks so smooth and polished. I don't even need to do anything else. It is incredible. I love it. Frizz free up your schedule with Way. Go to the Way, T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com and enter the promo code Heel Squad for 15% off any product. That's the Way, T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com, promo code Heel Squad. Trust me, you won't regret it. It's not that there isn't a biological process going on, but the point is that the biology is inseparable from the psychology. And so that just as our physiology can affect our psychology, so can our psychology affect our physiology. So that if somebody comes in with autoimmune disease to see me when I was still working as a physician, of course I would give them the medical treatment that they needed. But I would also initiate a discussion saying, well, what's going on in your emotional life and what's your history? And are you willing to talk about it? And the people that are, they find they get, often they get better. Yeah, I, um, <laughs> you'll laugh. But after my mom and I uh, dealt with the brain tumors, people started reaching out to me via social media, via whatever way to ask for help. And so I started being the the fake doctor behind the scenes, helping them. And so I would share everything that I had learned to give them a head start. Um, Mm. Because with brain cancer, you don't have a lot of time. And so I would go through like, okay, have you gotten your multiple opinions? I'd go through my list of things, nutrition, got to cut the sugar, blah, blah, blah. The last thing was, what's the emotional component we haven't dealt with? And instantly they would gasp. How did you know? And I was like, well, it's not really brain surgery to me. I'm seeing the connections for all of us and my family. And now I'm seeing it with so many people that I'm talking to. But the regular medical world doesn't take this into consideration at all. In fact, as I was reading your book, one of the things that really stood out to me 
I mean, there were so many, um, was again, not treating things as a whole. And the, the whole part of the medical system where we have specialties. So everybody's a specialist. So you go see the gastro specialist. He's just looking at that one area. He doesn't care about all the other symptoms and all the other things to connect the dots. That's now our job because uh, that's what I tell everybody here on the show every day. We have to be the CEO of our health. We have to try to connect the dots. And you talk about that in here. It really is left to us. Um, but the specialties thing I think is, is really interesting. And I wonder what you um, would share with everybody about that, having been in the system as well. Well, I was just, I was trained in conventional medical school and received a conventional <clears throat> mainstream medical education. And let's acknowledge that modern medicine has tremendous achievements to its credit. It's amazing what medicine is capable of achieving these days. But there's a huge missing link in medical education. And this is all the more frustrating and puzzling because the science is actually there. It's not like, it, it's not just intuition and, and kind of uh, insight, it's science. So let's take three diseases, okay? Um, multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, breast cancer in women. In the 19th century, great pioneers of medicine, like the person who first described multiple sclerosis was Jean-Martin Charcot, a French neurologist, who in 1870 said, this is a stress-driven disease. Rheumatoid arthritis. In 1896, I think, a great Canadian-American um, physician, Sir William Osler, one of the great medical teachers of all times, said that rheumatoid arthritis is a stress-driven condition. In 1870, a British surgeon, James Paget, said that breast cancer was related to emotions. Now, they had no science to back it up. They just had their observations. Now, since in the 150 years since then, there's been all kinds of science proving the validity of what they're saying, how related stress and trauma are to all of these three conditions. Multiple papers published in significant medical journals, and not a word of it is mentioned in the medical schools. In 1938, there was a great um, medical teacher at Harvard who gave a lecture published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And this man is so revered that he still has a name in his honor every day at Harvard. His name was Soma Weiss. And he said that emotional factors play as much of a role in the genesis of disease as physical ones, and they have to be at least as important in their treatment. Now, despite the fact that he said that, nobody at Harvard teaches what he said. And the gap between the science and the and, and the practice, it, 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 it's, it's almost unbelievable. Doctors are afraid of emotions. Uh, first of all, they themselves are very traumatized very often by their medical education. I could tell you stories. What does that mean? Traumatized? By their medical education. Well, um, look, somebody once joked, if you wanted to build a cult, what would you do? You would give people a special jargon that they don't even understand. You would isolate them from their families. You would sleep deprive them, sleep deprive them. You would put them under authority and leaders. In other words, you send them to medical school. 
So for a lot of people, if you talk to doctors, it's very traumatizing. And um, I know of psychiatrists. I know of psychiatrists at Harvard. They're leading psychiatrists at Harvard, actually. Um, when he had a child, who, he was a medical resident when he had a child who was in intensive, in neonatal intensive care. He wasn't given the time off to visit him because he had to go back to work. Uh, in the book, I mentioned my friend and colleague, Dr. Lisa Rankin, who was, a, who was an obstetrical gynecologist. Now she's a healer. Um, when she was training to be a obstetrical resident, one night, four babies died on the ward. She was crying in the doctor's room. She was told to get out of there and get back to work. I mean, I could go on. I could just tell yeah, you. Yeah, I'll tell you, I've, I instinctively have known how, how cruel the system is to doctors. Just yeah. little teeny things like someone's doing my ultrasound at 6 a.m. And they said they just left at 1130 last night. And yeah. you just see they are, uh, most of them look so unhealthy. They yeah. all look like they're going to tip over. They're eating cereal bars to just survive through their days. They don't have time to eat. I've yeah. talked about this on the show and how how horrible it is, but you know, hearing it from you is a different story because it feels uh, you know, more than and, just my feeling. And and, and then, no, the other thing, of course, is that who goes into medical school? And it's very often people very, very driven, like I was. Like I was really desperate to get into medical school because I needed the validation to be a doctor and now I'll be accepted and I'll be respected. Why? Because I didn't respect myself. Mm. So, so I go into medical school with my own trauma, then medical school reinforces that. Then when I go out there, in what position am I am? Am I in to talk to people about their emotions? But nobody ever cared about mine when, they were, when I was being trained. You know. Now, this is changing a bit, thank God, but it's still pretty harsh. So basically, what I'm saying to people is that unfortunately, go to your physician and expect decent physiological care but don't expect them to even ask or be interested or to certainly understand the emotional patterns that was the template for your disease in the first place they will not have that information despite all the research yeah that um that's the thing that i i find so important for people to know i think we look at doctors like god and we think they're going to know better. They're going to do better. It has, it, it, we look at it like it should be perfection mm -hmm. and it's very flawed because they're still humans. You're all still humans. So how many times have I had a radiologist misread a report yeah. and led to my mom's brain tumor becoming a huge issue when we, if we caught it, we could have caught it early enough. Right. Um, or when they're comparing MRIs to the last MRI, not the original, to see if there was any kind of significant growth because sometimes they grow slowly um, or when they just completely miss something. These are people who are human, who make and human who are, errors. And who are working under a lot of stress and pressure. Who are very overwhelmed. I know I've been in there when uh, they're putting me in an MRI. And I, I remember the guy was like, he said, I just wish I had some help. And he had to do everything. And you know, when they put the contrast in, they have to take the scans almost immediately because it's going to flush out of the area they need it in. So they have to race back into the, the booth, 
they, you know, and then afterwards I looked down and they've flung the, the needle with the vial, the, the tube, it's on the floor. Everything's just scattered all over the place. These are major institutions. They don't even have the help that they need. So Dr. Then, Zach Bush was on the show once and he said, we also have such a hard time yeah. because you go to school, you think you're going to become a doctor and heal people and you realize you're just a pharmacist. Yeah, and then right. the depression sets in when you know you can't do the very thing you wanted to do, which is heal people. So now I'm coming to you thinking, heal me. You behind the scenes are horrified because you don't want to say I can't heal you or I don't know how to heal you. And it's just this disconnect. And then how do you feel when you're the patient in that environment? When you see this sort of stressor on you, it just creates a less safety in you. And mm -hmm. actually for healing, you need a sense of safety. You know, so it, 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 it's significant. And unfortunately, again, <clears throat> these issues are largely ignored in medical education. Yeah. You know, and I, you know, and, and so many of us as physicians, we have to figure it out for ourselves. You know, I started seeing these patterns in, in family practice and then as a palliative care doctor and then as an addiction doctor, you know. But nobody taught me this stuff. And then you go to the literature and the research and it's all there. And then you have to, but everybody like almost has to discover it for themselves. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that's the state of the art. Yeah. You mentioned addiction in the book too. And you say, I hope I get this right. I think you say something like, it's not, you shouldn't be asking the addict why they're, you know, why they're addicted or what they're addicted to. It's get to the pain. What's the pain that's drawing yeah. them to this? Yeah, so I worked for 12 years in um, Vancouver, British Columbia, where I live. And Vancouver's downtown east side is North America's most concentrated, notorious area of drug use. So more than anywhere in the States. So in a few square block radius, we have thousands of people injecting and uh, inhaling and injecting drugs. And I was down there for 12 years. A lot of these people have HIV, hepatitis C. They live, sometimes they live in the streets. Then you talk to them about their histories. In the, in the 12 years of I, I, I worked on there, I didn't have a single female patient who had not been sexually abused as a child. And all the men had, had been severely traumatized. <clears throat> Needless to say, in Canada, with its horrible history of, of suppressing and oppressing and traumatizing our indigenous population, many of my clients were into Canadian indigenous people, um, 50% of the women in jail in Canada are indigenous. They make up 5% of the population. Wow. It's, just an, it's just an outrage. So anyway, I learned that. So then, when, and then I started looking at myself and I didn't have any drug addictions, but I certainly had addictive behaviors. And so um, like I was a workaholic and I was a shopaholic. So some days I would spend thousands of dollars on classical compact discs, thousands. You know, and I have to go back the next day and spend another several thousand. And uh, so then I said, well, what's an addiction? So addiction is manifested in any behavior in which a person finds temporary relief or pleasure and therefore craves, but then suffers negative consequences and has trouble giving it up. So craving pleasure, relief in the short term, suffering in the long term, inability to get up. That's an addiction. I said any behavior. So that could be drugs, illicit or illicit drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, could also be sex, gambling, pornography, shopping, 
eating, extreme sports, gaming, the internet. One could go work, of course. One could go on. And then when you ask people, well, I don't know, I can ask you. I, if I'm intruding, just say no. But <laughs> according to this definition, have you ever had any kind of an addiction? I'm not asking what, but anything at all. I don't care what. I'm not going to ask what. You know, I think I could have an addictive personality. Uh, so I was always careful not to indulge in anything that could become an issue. But I don't mean um, any behaviors. Um, work, any behaviors. Work for sure became uh, one. I don't think it was an authentic one. Okay. I think it was. Um, <clears throat> I think I think it became one only because I was competing with people and thinking if they can do it, I can do it. So if they can work a thousand jobs, I can do it too. See, I can okay, handle it. But, but let me ask you then. What was the, that has some negative impact on your life, I would guess. Oh, yeah, of course. Okay. We got that. But what was right about it? What did it do good for you? What did it give you in a short term that you wanted? Uh, well, I think it gave me more probably notoriety, more money. Um how about a sense of value? More value. Yeah. More things for my parents to brag about. Because <laughs> okay. when I had brain surgery, that was the first thing I said to my dad. I wrote him a letter and I said, I'm going to live a very different life if I come out the other side. And you're not going to have lots of things to brag about to people, just so you know. So here's the thing. Why does anybody have to prove their value? Like as human beings, we're born, we are value just because we exist. Mm -hmm. At some point... You got the message, I would guess, like I got the message that our value depends on what we do or what we produce and what we show the world. It's not intrinsic. Mm -hmm. Now, that's painful. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm asking. That's why I say that the first question is not why the addiction, but why the pain. Yeah. And, 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 all, and all the addictions, whether they're to drugs or to behaviors, they're all attempts to escape from emotional pain. And that's my mantra is not don't ask why the addiction, ask why the pain, because we all this stuff about addictions being genetic diseases. No, they're not. They're attempts to escape from pain, from distress. And the more trauma there is, the more pain there is. Statistically, the much more likely you are to be addicted. And that's not even controversial. You know, so with my downtown Eastside patients, it was evident, but addictions are rife throughout this society. They're just rife because most people suffer some degree of emotional pain. And this society provides all kinds of ways in which um, we can escape from ourselves. Yeah, well, and it's probably so rampant because we're all taught that we're not enough. You know, exactly. I remember you know, growing up, it was always, you know, my dad was always trying to show how perfect I was and how great I was. And, you know, they wanted everybody at church to know that we, you know, we're good or you got to be a good girl, Maria. Well, okay. A good girl doesn't get angry. A girl, good girl doesn't fight. A good girl doesn't, you know, lay boundaries for herself because that would maybe upset somebody. So, you know, I know that all of this trauma that we, you know, take on, as young children does kind of inform us on how to behave as we continue to go through life. And then, you know, some people will go down the path of substances and other people will go down the path of work yeah. <laughs> and becoming yeah. workaholics. So yeah. Other people, other people develop an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's just, there's all these different manifestations. 
What about eating disorders? I'm curious what you've seen with your your work. Well, I, I do write about this in the book. Um, it um, well, let me tell you something. So you, you live in California. Mm-hmm. Um, in California, there was a very famous set of studies done a few decades ago. It was called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Studies, the ACE studies. And they looked at 17,000 adults, their health, and then their childhoods. And what they found is that the more adversity a child experienced in childhood, the greater the risk of addiction of all kinds. So an adverse childhood experience was physical, physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. That's three. A parent dying, a parent being jailed, a parent being mentally ill, a parent being addicted, violence in the family, a rancorous divorce or neglect. For each of these ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, the risk of addiction went up exponentially. So by the time a male child had six of them, his risk of being a substance ejecting addict as an adult was 4,600% greater than that of somebody else. Now, these studies started at an obesity clinic because the physician who um, uh, was the lead investigator, Dr. Vincent Felitti, who's an internal medicine specialist in San Diego, California, was working at an obesity clinic and he found that with rigorous behavior control and diet control, people would lose weight, but they would always put it back on again. And he would say, what's going on here? I said to him, don't you realize we're eating to stuff down our pain? And then he started to ask them about their childhoods. And so when it comes to eating disorders, it's always a response to trauma. And uh, anorexics, for example, often grow up in troubled, traumatic homes where there's no control. So the only thing they can control is what goes into their mouths. And they develop a very distorted vision of themselves. Like this society says to women, you got to be thin. By the way, not just women, but mostly it's women who develop anorexia. But not only, there's also men. It's a way to control something that otherwise you're lacking control in your life. And it's a way of trying to perfect yourself in a society that demands perfection. And so, and as far as bulimia, it's like any other addiction. You know, you it, it provides temporary relief from emotional pain, temporary. So eating disorders are always tied to, and you know, the people that work in this area, some of them recognize that, and some of them only deal with the behaviors. And the deal with that, and the people that recognize the emotional underpinnings are naturally gonna be much more able to help people rather than just let's control the behavior. But there's always an emotional pain quotient that underlies eating disorders. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like everything does technically, right? Everything is, has an emotional component. Um, do you feel like if you're able to, and, and what have you found? Maybe I guess I'd go there. What have you found that has been really helpful in healing the emotional, um, scars and and traumas in terms of the physical healing so like you know whatever has worked in the emotional capacity has then led to the physical healing yeah so you mentioned earlier that 
you know, at age 44 now, you're, you're working on defining and, 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 and imposing your boundaries. In other words, what you're learning is to be yourself, to be authentic to yourself, you know. And so in the first chapter of the book, I talk about what trauma is. And, 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 and so trauma is a wound. That's actually what the word means. It, it comes from the word wound, the Greek you might know this. It comes mm-hmm. from a Greek for or Greek word for for wounding or wound. The, the biggest wound is the disconnection from ourselves, and that disconnection from ourselves is not an accident and it's not a mistake. Going back to our conversation earlier, when the environment doesn't accept you, you have to kind of develop a persona that's acceptable, so you disconnect from your real self. And you also talked earlier about how. The doctors don't get this. You have to be the own, your own CEO, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Well, in the book, we talk about agency the, as one of the healing principles. So the, the, the most significant dynamic, emotional dynamic in healing chronic physical illness is reconnecting with yourself and gaining agency. Not that you don't accept advice, but you're in charge. And so reconnecting with yourself that's the essence of it and now how does that show up for example i give some instances of this in the book somebody with rheumatoid arthritis say or multiple sclerosis they have a flare-up now they can look at that flare-up simply as a medical misfortune let's take the drugs and get it over with and get on with life and i'm not saying not to take the medications but i'm saying in addition look at your life because we know from studies and experience that flare-ups of multiple sclerosis or rheumatoid arthritis are often preceded by stress. And these stresses are generated by your lack of awareness of your own needs. So if there's a flare-up, look at it. What's my body trying to tell me? How was I stressing myself that I didn't realize? If I recognize that, and if I then... Usually it's, I took on too much. I was carrying too much burden for other people and not looking after myself. Not because I meant to, but because I wasn't aware. If I become aware and not take on so much stress, the disease doesn't have to keep flaring up. Because essentially the disease is a signal from my body to myself. And so this is real practical implications because I know people with rheumatoid arthritis or multiple sclerosis who once they get that message, their disease abates. Yeah. I think you said seeing the disease as an agent of healing. As a teacher, really. Yeah. As a teacher and and healing means becoming whole. That's what it means. And, and, and literally that's what it means. And so, that disconnection from ourselves that is imposed by our childhood environment means a disconnection, a loss of wholeness. Healing means regaining that wholeness. And so when we talk about recovery, by the way, what does it mean to recover? It means to find something. And uh, what is it that we find? We find ourselves. And so that's the potential teaching benefit of illness. Again, I don't recommend it, Hmm. celebrate it. I'm just saying it can work that way. What I'm really saying to people in this book, if I may show the book, is that okay? Yeah, of course. I have it right here. I was just about to show it, and I was just about to go through some of the pages I lined with notes. Well, so 
the, the point we're making in the book is that we don't have to get sick before we become whole. In other words, do we have to wait till we have to suffer into the truth? Or can we kind of look for the truth before the suffering becomes too intense? That's the whole point of writing this book. That would be nice. I just feel like most of us don't get there without some crisis. I think that that's how society has taught us. We just keep on keeping on. We have all of our mantras, you know, hustle and and health is just, you know, an aside. Well, you're describing me for sure. I mean, uh, you know, again, you know, referring to your Greek background, I I quote the great playwright Aeschylus in this book. And Aeschylus says in one of his, and he lived, what, 2,400 years ago in Athens. and, And he said, that the way God's created us, we have to suffer, suffer into truth. Oh. And that's oh what you God. And unfortunately, for a lot of us, that's how it is. Something has to sort of knock us on the head and say, wake up. I know. I know. That's that's what I ask myself every time God knocks me in the head. Yeah. Uh, is what what am I doing wrong? Where do I what do I need to change? What What's happening for this to keep persisting and for things to continue to come my way when I'm doing so much to to try and and address everything and be focused on it and and focused on my health. And so Well, the only the only phrase that I would quibble with is when you said, What am I doing wrong? Because that is a bit of a tinge of self-blame in it. Mm. And I'm I'm saying to people, don't blame yourself. You're not doing this deliberately. These are automatic unconscious patterns that were programmed into you when you had no choice. So, but I do recommend what I call a compassionate inquiry. Like, I like your second phrase where you said, what is to change? That's a really great question. So what am I doing that's contributing to the present suffering? And what needs to change? Those are great questions. As long as we ask them with um some self-patience and some self-compassion rather than self-accusation yeah i agree um i'm going to try to look through here to the most important ones that i highlighted as a first-time mom with a baby i'm always on the go whether it's running errands getting my coffee going to doctor's appointments or just spending quality time with little athena and that's why i rely on wonderful pistachios to keep me fueled and ready for anything no matter where i am kevin even keeps us bag stashed in the nursery you know, for the nighttime hunger moments. Wonderful pistachios comes in a variety of flavors and sizes, making them the perfect snack to have literally any time, whether I'm enjoying them during a quick break in between taping this show or I'm on the go and it's in the diaper bag. I do carry it in my travel bag and they're in my car. At this point, when I'm leaving the house, I think keys, wallet, wonderful pistachios. (laughs) Bonus, wonderful pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts with six grams of protein in every one ounce serving. So on top of all that, They keep me feeling satisfied. I'm energized while I'm juggling all this crazy stuff in life. Next time you're looking for a convenient and guilt-free snack, head over to www.wonderfulpistachios.com and stock up on your favorite flavors today. Mine is the sweet chili. Oh, I love this. Chronic illness, mental or physical, is to a large extent a function or feature of the way things are and not a glitch, a consequence of how we live, not a mysterious aberration. Yeah. You talk about toxic culture. Um, the entire context of social structures, belief systems, assumptions and values that surround us and necessary, 
necessarily pervade every aspect of our life. That social life bears upon health. That social life bears upon health is not a new discovery. Um, can you talk a little bit more about how we understand toxic and, and what really is toxic? Sure. So an analogy that easily is understood is in a laboratory, if we're growing microorganisms, say in a Petri dish, we put them in a certain broth. And we actually talk about culturing microorganisms. We put them in a culture, a laboratory culture. Now, if they thrive, if they proliferate, if they do well, we say that's a healthy culture. But if they die off in large numbers, or if they get sick in large numbers, they in the United States, 70% of adults are at least on one medication, 40% are on two. Well, is that a healthy culture? It's a toxic culture. And, and, and uh, if you understand that health isn't an individual, which is what we began this conversation with, that health isn't an individual attribute only, it reflects our social and psychological, emotional relationships in our culture. Now, what are the toxicities of the culture? Well, some are very obvious. I mean, and, and I think you referred to them, uh, just the way we eat and what we eat. I mean, and in the book, I do talk about this, and this is not controversial. It's been proven that the, the large food companies that actually control a lot of what we eat deliberately go out of their way to figure out what's the most addictive combination of sugar, salt, and fat that'll make us hooked on their products and will make us sick at the same time. Not that they want to make us sick. They just want to sell a product, but they don't care if we get sick. So there's the food that we eat. There's the, they keep discovering more toxins in the environment, you know, that have a negative effect on people. But by and large, when I talk about the toxicity of the culture, I'm not talking about those physical factors, they're there. I'm talking about the emotional ones. So again, if you go down to essential human needs of the child, acceptance, unconditional acceptance and all that, most children in society don't get those conditions because the parents are too stressed and too misled by the behavior experts, so-called, who focus on behaviors rather than the child's healthy development. And so that there's the childhood factors, the fact that a lot of children are traumatized, and many who are not abused, nevertheless, don't get their needs met. So they're hurt anyway, they're traumatized too, but in a less obvious way. Then there's just how we see human beings. Like when we, observe somebody acting selfishly or aggressively, or you say, oh, that's just human nature. When we see somebody acting with an open heart and in a generous way, we never say, oh, that's just human nature. <laughs> you know what? It is. Because how we evolved as creatures was not as aggressive, individualistic, competitive, greedy, selfish beings we would never have evolved that way we couldn't have we evolved as communal creatures giving taking taking care of and being and taking care of others in small groups in, in small hunter-gatherer groups and if you look at the culture of small hunter-gatherer groups and in indigenous cultures there's much more about giving about being communal about being connected about collaboration. You know, there's a very famous island in Greece where people live longer than elsewhere, you know? There's actually a great story. Um, do I have time to tell you the story? Yes, of course. Okay, this is in the New York Times, uh, maybe 10 years ago. There's a guy that came from Greece 
right after the Second World War. For, and he lived on a particular island. Um, but he moved to Chicago where he became a steel worker and he developed lung cancer. And the doctor said, well, with treatment, you got maybe six months to live and without treatment, you got three months. So he's got a decision to make. Where am I going to die? Chicago? He says, well, if I die in Chicago, all the money I've earned is going to go into the funeral and I can't leave anything for my kids. So he decides to go back to his island in Greece. It's a very famous island. I forget the name of it. It's one of these blue zones where people live a long time. So he goes back to this island, lying on his deathbed, and his neighbors and friends, are all, they all come and visit him and a lot of companionship. And, and he finally says, I'm shortening the story, but he says, what am I lying in this bed for? Why don't I sit on the porch and look at my beautiful garden? So he, he sits on the porch after a few more days or weeks. So he says, what am I sitting in the chair for? Why don't I go out there and putter in the garden a bit? To make a long story short, his cancer goes away. And uh, he comes back to Chicago 20 years later and he says, the article ends with, I tried to look for the doctors to ask them what the hell happened, but they had all died. <laughs> well, anyway, so when you look at the conditions on that island, you know what it was? People were communal, a lot of support, a lot of emotional um, connection. They walked everywhere, they didn't drive cars. They didn't eat junk food. They ate the healthy Mediterranean diet with vegetables and, you know, cheeses and the olive oil and, and so on. There was no time pressure. There was no stress. When people said they would come for lunch, they might show up at dinner time, and nobody cared. A totally different set of lives. So um, I'm no longer remembering what question I'm answering here, except to say that um, the, the social, that was a healthy culture. That was a healthy culture. And in that healthy culture, and by the way, um, uh, the question of people who miraculously survived terminal diagnosis and decades later they're still alive, this has been studied by at least two, two experts in the United States. One of them is Dr. Kelly Turner, who was, mm -hmm. was, was an oncological psychologist. And the other is Dr. Jeff Rediger, who was a psychiatrist at Harvard. And I talked to both of them. and. And I've talked to such patients myself. I described some of them. They were, they were given a month to live or two months, and then 10 years later, they're alive and healthy. You know, And the big difference is they connect to themselves, and they gain some agency. They become the CEOs on their own lives for the first time in their lives. I don't think it's easy to do. I don't know if I could do it. I'm just telling you what I've seen so that this capacity to reconnect with yourself, you asked what is the biggest factor in, in healing physical illness? Connection with your authentic self. Being your authentic self. That's the biggest factor. I think that's a great place to stop and, and a really, really major message for all of us um, is, is finding our true self and, and connecting to it. And I do believe that that would heal so much. Um, and, and be pretty miraculous too, especially with those examples. Cause I've read Kelly Turner's book and, um, you know, I was thinking about it the other day, I had interviewed Deepak Chopra and we talk about how small we are, mm -hmm. you know, even the Milky Way is so massive, but yet so small in comparison to the rest of the universe. And we're just a teeny, teeny fragment of that. And I remember driving around yesterday or the other day and I said, why do we care so much about what people think of us when 
when we die, they go to the funeral and then their lives move on. They don't care that some people, your closest, closest people are going to be, you know, maybe mourning for a week, two weeks, but then life's going to go on because life is for the living. Yeah. Right. You really, in a, in a healthy situation, you don't want to be living and mourning for too long and don't want to be so tied to the past. You want to stay present and be moving forward. But, you know, he was like, I know my top 25 friends probably won't even be able to come to my funeral because they're so busy. And he's Mm -hmm. like, and I know that in a week, two weeks, like I'm just, I'm gone. It's over. It's really stuck with me. I really thought about it later. Like, so we give so much power away. It's, it so happens that I was at a dinner with Deepak in, uh, San Francisco just uh, a week ago. No uh, way. Well, uh, well, we care so much what other people think because in childhood we depend on it. And so mm-hmm. that got programmed into us. Mm-hmm. That's why we care so much. So it's not a mistake. Uh, it's actually a, a survival mechanism in childhood. But then it becomes a limitation in adulthood. And that's the whole aspect of That's the whole um, essence of healing is to these imposed limitations that our families and cultures and communities unwittingly imposed on us, can we break out of them to become truly ourselves? That That's the whole challenge. And it's a lifelong one, by the way. You're still working on it? Well, I'm, I just turned 79 and uh, I've written, I've, I've joked about this, I've written my own epitaph. You know what it's gonna say in my gravestone? What? It's gonna say, it was a lot more work than I had anticipated. <laughs> My husband says he's going to write, nobody tried harder. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the whole point. Yeah. But yeah. you know what? It's so worthwhile. Yeah. I think you and I both know. It is. It is. Well, this was an amazing conversation. Um, thank you for this book. I think it's so important for everyone to read and for everyone to really digest all of the the lessons in here. Um, And, and yeah, I am. I'm so grateful for your time and so grateful for this conversation. Likewise. Thank you for hosting me. So he was as amazing as I thought he was going to be. I took copious notes. I mean, so good. So much that we believe in, but also, you know, kind of uh, reiterated and, and stamped by, you know, someone of his stature is, is great. The, the mind is not separate from the body. I'm sure that you took so many things away for yourself. So, I was making sure I went down into some baths for you. I appreciate it. I was I'm like, she's not jumping in, so I'm jumping in for no, her. I appreciate it. Like when you brought up the, because I wanted to go back to the eating disorder stuff and then you brought it up. So I wrote notes about that. I mean, everything, the IBS, like Carolina has it too. We're both over here like, yep, my mom with breast cancer. Like it's just, and exactly what you just said, we hear this, but like with someone like him just reinstating it, it really is like, wow, it's, it's a, big wow and it's it's nice to hear and yeah he's brilliant he's I feel like I remember after surgery I remember in my journals and I remember saying to Kevin Mm. and therapists I'm like we've built a life I didn't want (sighs) and I remember wanting to sell my house back then I wanted to downsize I wanted to simplify and we didn't do it then Um, I simplified in some other ways but I don't know if it was enough 
but now you can do it and now you are doing it. Yeah. Which is, it's nice. I think I want to move to that island in Greece. (laughs) Girl, it's okay. I'm like kind of back on the Nashville game. I'm like trying to find a cowboy. That's been my new revelation of the week. I'll tell you about it. (laughs) I'm curious. Because we were talking about that again too. I was like, Nashville just seemed like such a nice little fun life. I think like- That's what I'm saying. But what I'm missing and I see that is the community. Mm. And that's why I was attracted to that community in Nashville because it is a community I know I've been yearning for that forever. I never really had it. And I had a little of it when growing up with family, but we never had it with our neighbors growing up. We never had it anywhere. And then I had a smidge of it here uh, at some point when we became friends with all the neighbors and then they all moved out in COVID. And so I know I need community. I know I want to be able to walk over to a friend's house and sit with them. I don't love the idea that everything is an hour away here and seeing friends is a chore that you just don't end up doing because you're just too exhausted. Um, and, and so I don't know, I might just blow up my life after this interview. Okay. Me too. I'm in In a good way. In a good way. Yeah. I'm in, I really liked, um, we, we, I want to bring him back to ask if, about psychedelics too. He talks about he how he did, uh, I think it was ayahuasca or psilocybin in his early seventies. And he like went back to, he like when he was a baby. And I don't know, this man is just so interesting. And the fact that he's like 79, swims two kilometers a day, 70 doing his psychedelics. Like he's still living this life. Like he's- You said, keep learning, keep right. going. And that's so inspiring to me. So I'm like, you know what? I agree, Maria. Let's bl- let's blow up our lives and keep learning and growing. And if something doesn't feel right, change it. Yeah. I, I really connect with the living your authenticity. And mm. it's really, really hard. Um, but I think that we should keep finding people to come in to talk about how to live our most authentic lives. And, and how do you blow it all up? And right and in search of it. Right. And just realize like, I mean, to me, I I think I I used to say this in different incarnations of the show. When you turn 40, you should just be like, okay, I'm blowing it up. I want to switch it up. Let's (laughs) do something different because life is so short. Let's just change it up. And then if we don't like it, we go back to something else or whatever. We're so afraid of losing our spots and losing, Mm -hmm. you know, momentum or whatever. Sometimes we just have to really really take into account what do I really need and what do I really want? Um, and so the good news is, at least for me, I love what I get to do every day. And I love that I get to talk to people like this and have proximity to people like this. Yeah. So I'm not in one of those toxic jobs anymore. Thank God. Um, but the other good news is I can do it from anywhere. So maybe we're moving to Greece, Queen. Okay, I'm in. Carolina, I'm in. let me know if you're in. <laughs> All in. She says yes. But yeah. the other thing I want to say too, going back to what you were just saying, it's like we all feel like we have to be in this box, but then like to what he was saying, we're all so scared of what everyone else is gonna think. And mm-hmm. it's like so that's something that I'm consciously working on. Yeah. I'm like, who cares? Who cares? And I don't know why I do care so much. I'm like, yeah, who cares? So I want to make a, a hail squad sweatshirt that just says, who cares? Oh, I like that. I do. I think that's what I love about our merch. To me, it's yeah. like a reminder, but I want another reminder. Who cares? Just remember I that. Love who that. cares? 
stop. So important. Because we're killing ourselves worrying about what everyone else is going to think of us, what everyone else wants from us, what everyone else, you know, expects of us. Piss off. Piss <laughs> off and who cares? I'm in. Sign me up. I'm angry <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm allowing my anger to be present. <laughs> no, as you should, as you Piss should. Healthy, off. healthy anger. I mean, that was crazy too, but it makes so much sense. Like I literally, I wrote the, yeah, suppression of healthy anger equals depression healthy anger that a child can't express becomes self-loathing. Like just, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. all these things. Again, it's all these things that we know, but I don't know why hearing it from him and the way you were asking him to questions where he would say something, you're like, okay, but how? <laughs> like, I don't know. It just really, all of it really resonated with me today. And I am grateful. Yeah. I wonder when you think about kind of the origins of some of your stuff, do you feel like you're really able to address it in your therapy sessions each week? Well, it's funny that you say that because yes, but now after this, I honestly feel like, you know how you always talk about at that Tony Robbins event, it was like the Windex on the Windex eyes. on the eyes. Yes. And so I think that every day with these interviews, it becomes a little bit more like that for me. And this one was a, was really one where when I was prepping and doing research, I kept having aha moments that I was like, oh, we got to talk about this in therapy. Oop, oop. And that's why I took so many notes today because I'm like, I'm going to come up with a list to talk to her about because yeah, now I feel like it, it it's building and I have this accumulation of like, oh, wow. Okay. That's where it's coming from. I got to talk about this. So yeah, absolutely. I have it in the past. I think it's, it's only in the last like couple months where I'm becoming more and more aware and now I have my list for Pam next week. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what he's saying basically, right? Is see where your pain points are and then go back in to see what the triggers are. What, why right. is this coming up right now? Right. Um, so yeah, it's, it's uh, pretty wild this journey, really but is. my stomach's screaming through the interview. <laughs> Did you hear it? <laughs> no, I didn't. Could have been Bobo. Uh, no, it wasn't Bobo. It was me. <laughs> uh, I locked the dogs downstairs in the kitchen so that I could have a peaceful interview and not have them breaking curtains and good, you know good. doing all their things. <laughs> but uh, that is it for us today. May I remind you, friends, of our amazing partnership with Macy's and how they keep the lights on and keep us bringing you this amazing content. So we're not just healing from traumas and all kinds of stuff we're healing our fashion too because some of us need a lot of help uh some need more less and some need more we have amazing picks for you and everyone in your life but also your home on macy's.com backslash heel squad i hand choose everything in there and curate it all um adding some uh really cool workout gear for the new year as we're all trying to you know stay physically fit as well as mentally fit and so much more. So take a look. Anything you buy helps support the show. And we're so grateful to you and to Macy's, of course. And uh, that's it for us. In the meantime, be nice people, make good choices and be present. 
This podcast and all related content published or distributed by or on behalf of Maria Menunos or mariamenunos.com is for informational purposes only and may include information that is general in nature and that is not specific to you. Any information or opinions expressed or contained herein are not intended to serve as or replace medical advice, nor to diagnose, prescribe, or treat any disease, condition, illness, or injury, and you should consult the healthcare professional of your choice regarding all matters concerning your health, including before beginning any exercise, weight loss, or healthcare program. If you have or suspect you may have a healthcare emergency, please contact a qualified healthcare professional for treatment. Any information or opinions provided by a guest expert or host featured within website or on company's podcast are their own, not those of Maria Menounos or the company. Accordingly, Maria Menounos and the company cannot be responsible for any results or consequences or actions you may take based on information or opinions. Hey, Heal Squad, we have been on quite the journey together, and we're hearing from so many of you just how much this show is helping you heal and get better, and it makes us feel so good. We love, love, love it, and we just ask that you don't keep it to yourself. Spread the message and share the show or your favorite episode with your friends. And if you want to help us even more, you can leave us a five-star rating and a comment on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and follow us on Instagram at Heal Squad. You can also DM us anytime because we love connecting with you. And finally, you can also join us on Patreon for our monthly live heal events with world-class healers and ad-free episodes exclusive only to Patreon and our Super Heal Squad for as little as $10 a month. So go to patreon.com backslash heel squad to join. Getting better isn't easy, friends, but as I say all the time, it's a whole lot easier if we can do it together. We love you all so much, and we love doing this thing called life with you.